So, a couple weeks ago, I began a series in the book of Titus, and right after that beginning, we had a situation develop in our ministry, one of our students, and we've since been dealing with the effects of that, thinking through the realities of that, and... You know, full disclosure, I haven't been able to really take my mind off of that and thinking through so many different things. My mind has gone to so many different places in the last two weeks, Um, good places, thinking through the hope that we have in Christ and thinking through the comfort that the Word of God brings us, spending time dealing with my own soul with these things, comforting others who are grieving, spending time with my own family, talking through some of these truths. And and so I haven't been able to bring my mind back to Titus. (laughs) And so we're going to spend, I don't know, a few weeks thinking through some of these things that I've been thinking about that we find in God's word and just setting our hearts and our minds upon these various truths that are woven together and connected, but I just, I couldn't go anywhere but, but where we're going to go this morning, this week, and so just to give you a little bit of a road map, uh, this morning, next week, we're going to talk about further response. I know a Wednesday or so ago, um, I talked about an initial response to when we deal with tragedy, and we looked at the faithfulness of God out of Lamentations 3. I want to I wanna further expound upon that. I want to think about how to respond to catastrophe. Um, how do we deal with it? Where do our hearts continually need to go? And, and so I want to spend a couple weeks dealing with that. And then I think what I want to do is I want us to really hone in on what it means to think biblically. What it means to think biblically. I want to paint a picture of what it means to conform our minds to the pattern of this world, which we're told not to do in Romans 12. And then I want to think through what it means to have our minds transformed and renewed by the Word of God. And so I think that's the direction. It's kind of, it's kind of developing on a week-by-week basis, but that's what I'm looking at doing all for the purpose of shepherding our hearts to think as biblically as we can about these things because, unfortunately, we live in a fallen world. And the events of two weeks ago, though very uncommon to us and so thankful for that, are not uncommon in this life. Catastrophe in general, tragedy in general is not uncommon in this life and We need to have a very robust theology of dealing with tragedy. It's very important. One of the common things that Satan will use to disrupt a believer's life, and sometimes, unfortunately, put a believer's life into shambles, is to bring catastrophe upon that person, that situation, And it just begins to unravel them. 
we don't want that to happen. We don't want our hearts and our minds to be unraveled by what God has said is going to take place because we live in a fallen world. We want to learn to think very biblically about these things. A lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is not new. It'll be by way of reminder, but hopefully it'll, it'll come with a new punch, so to speak. It'll come with a new thrust as we you know, see it in light of the events that unfolded a couple weeks ago. And so what I want us to do this morning to just begin our time, and we're going to be here for a little bit, then we're just going to move on to some things here. But I want us to go to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Let me just read this psalm for us to begin. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. And God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is one of the places where my mind has gone for the last couple of weeks. This psalm, reflecting upon it, reading through it many times, talking about it with others. It's just so abundantly helpful. We see at the outset, and I'm not going to unpack this fully. I just want to make some comments about it to guide our thoughts. But we see at the outset that when... The mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and when the waters roar and foam, which is an analogy for when your world is shaken, when your world is shattered, when difficult things arise in your life, the mountains quake at its swelling pride, when when things just unravel, 
It begins before making that statement with verse 1 saying, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He sets the stage for what he's about to say. He, he puts our hearts at ease. He strengthens our souls with the reality that God is our refuge and our strength. That God is our, our fortress. That God is the one we run to, the Psalms say, and we are saved as righteous people. A refuge, as you know, if you think about it in the way cities worked in olden times, is you would have these fortresses built. This, this city would be kind of built as a fortress. They would, they would have this moat of water that would go around it. They didn't want other cities to come in and attack. They didn't want other nations to come and overtake them. And so, so they would set their cities up in such a way that, that they could fend off other people. They could fend off other countries. And it was very much like that. It was a fortress. It was a refuge. This is, you know, going in and out. You, you could go in and out one way. And it was to protect the people of that particular city. And regardless of how well that fortress was made, it could still be penetrated by other nations, by other armies. As we've seen throughout the course of history, that all previous nations have fallen. <laughs> and so they've, they've been penetrated. Those fortresses have been put to the ground. But the reality is, when I think about that, I think about how hard those places tried to, to be that strong fortress to protect their people. It was still fallible. And so when I read the words of Psalm 46, verse 1, that says, God is our refuge, my mind cannot help but think about that analogy and think that there is nothing and there is no one that can penetrate the refuge that is God for his people. God protects his people. God protects his people physically in the midst of chaos, and God protects his people emotionally, and God protects his people spiritually. God protects his people mentally. God is a refuge. He is our refuge and strength. This is a very present help in trouble. An abundantly available help. If you look in the notes on the side of your Bible, you see it can be translated abundantly available. That God is there for his people to run to and to find refuge in constantly. He is an ever-present, a very present help. And so as the earth becomes chaotic around, as it says there in verses 2 and 3, as, as, as the world 
has all kinds of chaotic things happening. That the righteous person, because remember he says he's our refuge and our strength. He's talking about believers. The righteous person can run to God and be protected and be helped. And it's not like God will turn us away. It's not like we'll run to God at some point in the midst of the issues of life, in the midst of a catastrophe that's taking place. It's not like we'll run to him and he'll say, "Hmm, not available right now. You're not going to find a no vacancy sign. You're going to run to God as his child in the midst of a chaotic circumstance and you are going to find an abundantly ever-present help. And this help is divine. It's divine. It's, it's the help of God. It's not the help of another human, though we're so, so thankful for the help that we have with one another, with various things in life. But, but this is a divine help. This is a supernatural help. A help that, that enables us to understand that when we run to him, And when we cling to him, that we are protected. Protected in the midst of the chaotic circumstance. A couple of other comments I want to make from this text. As you move down into the second In the third part of this psalm, it breaks down in three ways. At the end of verses 4 through 7, you have this refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. The end of verse 11 is the same refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. The Lord of hosts, speaking of the God of angel armies, this this one who fights for us. So it's not only this, this protector, this refuge that we run to and His strength comes out in the reality that he is the God of angel armies. He is the one who is able to fight for his people. And so that refrain ends, verse 7, that refrain ends, verse 11, as he talks about the issues unfolding. So after verses 2 and 3, dealing with the fact that the world unravels, Catastrophe strikes, tragedy happens. It says, verse 4, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Verse 5, he says, God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. We see another reality about God here, and that is the fact that he is stable and consistent in the midst of instability, the instability of this world. And so you have all of these things unraveling in verses 2 and 3. And he continues on with the analogy of just using, using aspects of the earth. And he says, there's a place 
in the midst of everything happening here, that God is not moved. That though the circumstances unravel all around him, though the difficulties of life come, though there is such instability in our minds of what's taking place in this earth, in this world, in our individual lives, God is stable. And he stands in the midst of the surrounding chaos and he is not moved. That brings peace to our hearts. That brings peace to our hearts. Hebrews 6 tells us that he is an anchor for the soul. God is established. God is not going to be shaken by the events of life. God is not deterred when when tragedy strikes in our midst. God is stable. He is consistent. He is immovable. He is unchanged. So when we run to him as a refuge, we don't have a a God who shifts with the course of this world or with the course of our circumstance. We have a God who is stable and consistent and unmoved, and we are saved. The psalm goes on to reveal the fact that God will not only be a refuge for his people, but he will eradicate evil. He will eradicate evil. He's the God of angel armies. Verse 8 says, Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. God is going to make all things right. He is sovereign and has the ability to do so because you see that God of angel armies is at work, but you also see the God of Jacob is our stronghold, speaking to the reality of his sovereignty. He made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He made promises that he is going to fulfill. And so when we think about the God of Jacob, our minds go to the reality that he is a faithful God and that he is sovereign to make all of those promises come to pass. And so he is... The God of angel armies who's going to take care, and er- take care of and eradicate evil. But he's also going to bring an end to the turmoil and the chaos and the catastrophe. I love that verse 10. We know this verse. We go to this verse. But it's in the context of realizing that God is our refuge and our strength. It's in the context of realizing that God is the God of angel armies, that he is going to go and fight for us, that he is going to eradicate evil, that he is unmoved in all of these things. And it says, then cease striving. Some of your translations say, be still and know that I am God, to be still, to to not panic not become irrational, not strive for human solutions, 
but to rest in the reality that, reality that Yahweh is God. Cease striving. Cease getting bent out of shape, trying to figure everything out, trying to make right things that we can't make right because everything around us is stronger than us. And rest in the reality that Yahweh is God. That he will be exalted among the the nations and that he will be exalted in the earth. This God who is our refuge and strength, this, this God who is unmoved in the midst of catastrophe, this God who is the God of angel armies who goes out and fights for us and who, who will eradicate evil is the God who's telling us to be still and know that I am God. I mean, that brings great comfort to my soul. I hope that brings comfort to your soul. This God is inviting us to come behold these, these works of the Lord, the fact that he is going to make all things right, and he's inviting us then, in light of that fact, to be still and to know that he is God. I thought that would be a good place to start. Thinking about God. Thinking about the fact that when catastrophe strikes, our minds must go to God. Must go to God. And so in light of catastrophe, it's critical for us to set our minds upon God who provides stability, who provides comfort, and who provides peace. So as we considered his faithfulness last, last week, this morning, as I said, I want to set our minds upon God again, that he is great enough, that he is big enough, that he is good enough, that he is satisfying enough to be all that we need, even when life unravels before us. He really is that sufficient. I want us to wrap our minds around that. That he really is that sufficient for us to run to and for us to find comfort. For us to run to and for us to find strength to go on. And so I want us to search the scriptures together, and I want us to walk out of here more confident in our great God and his revealed truth. How does a believer respond when catastrophe strikes? I want to gather our thoughts this morning around four crucial responses to catastrophe for the believer. And what you'll notice is that these center around the character of God. And 
were not going to go through all four this morning. I didn't know how far I was going to get. I've already used up a little time. But we will deal with these four over the next couple of weeks. And again, these four responses are not new. But they need to be at the forefront of our minds. The first response that I want us to consider for the remainder of our time this morning is to rest in the absolute sovereignty of God. Rest in the absolute sovereignty of God. When we talk about sovereignty, we talk about the reality that God is in complete control of all things, both good and evil. There is nothing outside of the control of God. There's nothing that takes God by surprise. There's nothing that that God learns. God is omniscient, and He is omnipresent, and He is omnipotent. He is completely sovereign over life, and He is sovereign over death. Nothing in this world comes to pass outside of God's perfect plan and infinite ability to use his plan for his ultimate purposes to glorify himself. There's nothing in this world, not one thing that comes to pass outside of God's perfect plan. God's absolute sovereignty means that nothing can thwart his perfect will. Nothing takes God by surprise. We have to rest in that because when we see something like what happened two weeks ago, our minds naturally go to, how in the world, Lord, could this happen? You're sitting there and you're thinking about the reality of what just occurred. Our minds go there. And we say, Lord, really? Really? Your word tells us that you are good, that you love us, that you care for your people. And yet this? And though in many ways it's natural for our minds to go there in the moment, we can't stay there. And so our minds have to shift to the truth about God concerning who he is. And the most fundamental thing we have to realize in moments when all we have is questions and all we see is something that just seems counter to everything God is, all we have in those moments is the reality of what the word of God says about him and that is he is absolutely sovereign over everything. You see, though God is not the author of evil, in no way did evil find its foundation in God. Evil does not come from God. He did, however, eternally ordain its existence by permitting it to come to pass by means of second causes. That is, his moral creatures whom he created 
by first cause, directly creating them, through their actions, through second causes, brought evil into the world by choosing to rebel against their creator. And we know why that is. Because of Satan. Because of Satan. Evil originated with Satan. He rebelled against God and the glories of heaven was kicked out. We know this from texts in both Isaiah and Ezekiel. He took a third of the host with him that has become the demonic realm. And from that time has become the great father of lies, has become the great tempter, has become the evil one, has become the enemy of God. And though God is not the author of evil, he did ordain its existence by permitting it to come through these causes. But all of this, all of this, we must understand, was not outside God's perfect will, which he ordained in eternity past, but rather it was an avenue by which he chose to glorify himself. You see, the existence of evil in every form, every aspect of evil that exists is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. And as believers, we need to understand and embrace this in regard to the evil that we encounter in our world. And so I want us to look at three passages which declare clearly God's ultimate sovereignty over evil or over everything, including evil. I want us to see this. And so turn first of all to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all men in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For God said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now... There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. 
but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So many things to learn in that portion of Scripture. A few things I just want to point out to highlight the reality of God's sovereignty here. Because if you read on verses 13 through 22 and then through several more chapters in the book of Job, you see that when we think of catastrophe, we think of the book of Job. This man's life went to shambles, beginning with his family and then with his own body to the point of wanting to die, but but still being around. Job was completely and totally overwhelmed with tragedy, with catastrophe. That begins with his sons and daughters dying. And while they were still speaking, another came and said, um, that's where they die. And then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshiped. Said, naked I came from a mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin or did he blame God. So prior to them dying, the messengers came and told them that the Sabaeans attacked them and took their stuff, slew the servants. It's a complete, total, utter mess and disaster Note who instigated the disaster. Verse 7, as Satan and his minions came and presented themselves before the Lord, this looks like a, a regular occurrence because, again, God is sovereign over every aspect of life, and he's sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over his dominion. And he came and presented himself and asked him where he's been, knowing where he's been. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Yahweh is the one who asked Satan about Job. Why? Well, we don't find this out until the end. We don't find this out, and, and thankfully, we have the end of Job. Because if, if Job 1 ends, Job 2 ends, and we don't get the rest of Job, we are left very confused about this God that we serve. But God in his kindness revealed to us who he is at the end of this book. But, but he instigated this for the purpose of putting Job to the test. So that God would show his mighty power <clears throat> in the life of this man. And that God would ultimately be, be glorified. And to show that God is in charge of all things. And to show that God is worthy to be worshipped because of who he is. 
Job's response is very helpful for us there in 21 and 22, verse 20, where it says he fell to the ground and worshiped. He fell to the ground and worshiped. In the midst of this disaster, he fell to the ground and worshiped, which is where our hearts have to go, where our minds have to go, where we have to go when catastrophe fights, when, when catastrophe strikes. And he did not sin and he did not blame God. He went to God. He pleaded with God. He worshiped God. This was the regular pattern of his life. We know that from verse 5. Some of the days of feasting had completed their cycle. Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job had this pattern of worship in his life. He worshiped God. And so when catastrophe struck him, what did he do? He worshiped God. We don't want to miss that. You want to prepare yourself for the issues of life? You want to prepare yourself for the inevitable catastrophe that strikes humanity constantly because we live in a fallen world? Worship God now. Your personal life of worship should be growing, it should be cultivated, it should be the priority of your life. Because when catastrophe then strikes, that's where you're going to go. You're going to go and you're going to worship God, which is the right response. The text goes on. Disaster strikes again. Job himself is struck with boils and becomes very painful for him. Again, God said in verse 3, Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Another day where Satan and his minions had come to present themselves before God, and God says again, have you considered my servant Job? Now, if Job could understand what was happening, he would have been like, Lord, really? Again? And we go there, don't we? We go there. Something happens. We, we work through it, and it's difficult. And then something happens again, and we think, Lord, really? Again? Job had every right to do that. He wasn't privy to this conversation. We aren't privy to the conversations either. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. Look at this. Look at this biography that God gives of this person. This is amazing. This is the holy Perfect God of the universe. Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. There's no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. He was highlighting this man's integrity to Satan. And what did that do? Well, it brought glory and honor to God. God was glorifying, glorifying himself through this man's integrity because it was God who had worked in Job's life. It was God who brought Job to being born again. It was God who, who brought Job to a point of this personal pattern of worship. It, it was God who worked in him. It was God who had sanctified him. And now as he asked Satan again, have you considered my servant Job? Listen, he fears me. He loves me. We want that to be said about us. Note his response of worship again, verse 10. Right, this is after his wife comes. 
and I, I do, you know, we, we'd like to give the wife a difficult time thinking, you know, with a wife like her who needs enemies kind of situation, but, but you got to put yourself in her shoes. She's thinking, Job, you are a mess. You are in awful pain. Just curse, curse God and die. Relieve yourself from this pain. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Worships God again through his response. Then his friends enter the picture. And again, it's easy for us to get on his friends, isn't it? These guys and their advice, and we think, come on, guys. Really? That's what you're going to tell Job? He's not going to be there for him? You know, it's interesting. Before they go and give him advice, it says they sat there in the dust with him for seven days. I was talking to one of these guys about the fact they have to take this class for eight hours a day this semester. They have to sit there for eight hours, the same class. And that sounds absolutely horrible to me. These guys came and sat in the dust with their friends, with each other, with Job for seven days. They, they loved Job. They cared about Job. They were just terrible advisors. They were not good counselors. And so Job not only has to deal with the boils, the loss of his family, a wife who had bad theology, friends who have bad theology. Now, this is his life. It wasn't just like somebody could come and help correct this. And, and he goes through this through so many chapters in this book. You read through Job, and if you hear the book of Job preached, it's usually they preach verse, chapters 1 and 2, then they go to chapter 19, then they go to chapter 42. Because everything, in, the rest in the middle is just this kind of building one thing after another. It's all these conversations, all this bad advice from his friends after he's going through all this difficult circumstance. This is what he's dealing with. This is the catastrophe of his life. But Job continued to trust in Yahweh. It doesn't say that he continued to not sin. Job struggled. He struggled. But you come to chapter 19. I just want you to see this in chapter 19. Go ahead and turn to Job 19. Now this is this continued trust and rest in God's sovereignty in his darkest hour. I mean, when you think about Job, you just think about the rubber meeting the road, don't you? Think about like this is this is the real deal. This is catastrophe 101. Verse 13, Job's lamenting about everything that's happening. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my, bro my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me. And those I have loved turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. 
Pity me, pity me, O oh my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? And I'm not satisfied with my flesh. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. And even in the midst of all of this, as he is lamenting about all of the issues of his life, says this, verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet my flesh, in my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. That's it. That's where we go. That's where our heart goes. That's where our mind goes. Yes, Lord, catastrophe is taking place all around. Yes, it has struck my personal life. Yes, I see it in this world. Whatever the case may be, yes, I see all of this. But as for me, my Redeemer lives. And I know that last day, I shall see God. Guys, that's where we go. That, that is rest in the sovereignty of God. That is being still and knowing that I am God. That's what that is. It's grabbing hold of the reality of who Christ is. And it is clinging to that truth with every fabric of our being and saying, Lord, I know it's true. And I know that regardless of what happens on this earth, I'm going to see you. That's it. That's the rest. That's where we have to go. He's so kind to us. We know the end of this book. God graciously reveals himself to Job and his purpose for this tragedy in his life. That it was for God to put his sovereignty on display through the demonstration of his power. We see in that truth that life is not, life is about God's purposes being fulfilled. It's not about ours. We see Job's final response in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Job repents. He repents of all of that sinful thought he had towards God in the midst of his difficulty. But what you see with the man Job is you just see this picture of a guy who's struggling with the issues and the, and the difficulties of life and this tragedy that has occurred, and, and it's a little bit up and down. You see how he, he immediately goes to worship, and then he strives for that as he works through, and as those counselors continue to give him bad advice it just makes him angry and so he looks at God and he looks at his friends and he says are you kidding me but even in the midst of that 
right dead center in the middle of the book. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. And then he comes to the end and he says, God, I repent in dust and ashes. You are God and I am not. We were going to go look at two more passages, but we're not going to do that today. We'll continue thinking about this. I think it's, a, I think it's an appropriate place to end. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even though my skin is destroyed, I know I'll see God. Take hold of that truth. Again, we'll continue to think through this, and and I admit to you, I am continuing to think through this. This is a very... This is, I prepare messages week in and week out. (laughs) And the text is the text, and I'm so thankful for that. But there's also those times in life where you're looking at the text and you're saying, okay, Lord, I understand this in just a different way. I, I am really wanting to grab a hold of this in a new way. And so as, as I do that personally, I hope that you will continue to join me for that as we think about these things. But it's my intention for us to just understand that we have to continue to go to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Father, take these, these thoughts, these, these truths, no doubt, from your word they're there for us to understand and see, but Father, just take these things and permeate our hearts with them. We want to, we want to know you fully. God, our hearts long to see you. We, we want to understand you in a greater way. We we want our hope to be in you, and we need your help with that. We're so thankful that you are abundantly available to help us in our time of need. So, Father, take all of these thoughts, drive them home to our hearts. May the things that were helpful today be embraced. May the things that weren't be discarded. For the glory and honor of Christ, we ask that you just bring comfort to our souls. In his name, amen.